0: Welcome to another episode of Congo Kids Life Stories where I share my experiences of growing up in the Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. Teaching. It's said to be a noble profession. Teachers have always been highly regarded in society and are deemed the future of our country to educate the next generation to work, invent, innovate, and improve society in general. Teachers have considerable support and political influence in the U.S., and as such, a huge amount of money is spent on teachers, schools, and the education of our children. It was just reported that in California, between salaries, materials, supplies, physical plant, bond payments and pensions that over $24,000 is spent per pupil in the public school system here in this state. Most states in the union are in the $10 to $15,000 range per student. So for sure the United States places a big emphasis on education and spends considerable dollars in this regard. Children are blessed with small class sizes, their own desk, their own computer or iPad in many school districts, textbooks science equipment, audiovisual and computer access, band equipment, sports equipment, uniforms, athletic opportunities, and everything from counseling services and psychologists to a school nurse and school lunch programs. But today's episode is to show the unfortunate contrast in the resources and environment and opportunities American kids have for their schooling through high school as compared to what the Democratic Republic of Congo has – you will be shocked at the contrast. What challenges do the teachers in Democratic Republic of Congo have with the limited resources? And how does that impact the education of the students and their opportunities into adulthood? How to make do with what one has to maximize the results? I interviewed several people that taught high school in Congo for many years to understand the teaching environment and how they tried to achieve success in spite of all the challenges. If you listened to my 30th episode titled The Gimana Gopher, I mentioned that in 1982 I returned to then Zaire, now DR Congo, for a year after my sophomore year in college. My main job function was to run around and haul freight, pick up people, meet the airplane, handle immigration paperwork, negotiate customs fees for supplies and equipment, buy supplies when available, and so on. But my other role was that of a high school professor. I taught two subjects that year, chemistry and English. I had two classes of each subject and the classes each numbered 60 students per class. So I had a total of 120 kids. Oh, and I taught these courses in French. I was 20 years old and was part of the school faculty. Also, since many of my ninth grade students had either started school late, missed a year due to lack of funds or flunked a grade A few were pushing 17 or 18 years old, so I was only a few years older than some of my students. So here I was, a high school teacher at Institute Kemia in Gemina, Democratic Republic of Congo. Kemia is the word for peace, and this school had been built and operated by our mission, but in the early 1970s, it had been turned over to the local church to operate and staff. My government salary was $25 per month, but because I was being paid by the mission as a short-termer, my salary either went into the general fund or probably just wasn't even paid out. The students knew who I was as I'd lived in Gemara since sixth grade and my dad had been a teacher there for many years and even done a stint as the principal. Everybody knew Monsieur Roger or Mr. Roger. So by virtue of that connection, I did have some instant cred and respect from the students. I was nervous to take this role Not because I was worried about the subjects. I'd taken chemistry in high school and even a few courses in college. And I knew English well enough from classes in high school and even college, so had the grammar fundamentals down good enough to teach the Congolese. Nor was I concerned about being in front of a group of people. Public speaking wasn't that big of a concern to me. The challenge was gonna be the French. Though I'd learned it as a child in Belgium and taken French classes all through high school, I'd not spoken it for several years, and when I'd lived in Congo previously, I'd almost always communicate with my friends in Lingala, as it was easier and I was more comfortable in Lingala. French was for formal or official conversations, and as a kid, I didn't have too many of those. So to say I was a bit rusty with my French linguistic skills would be accurate. The classrooms weren't much to brag about. Benches with tables and a blackboard. A bench and table set that was designed for three or four people often had eight or nine kids crammed on the bench. Concrete walls, concrete floors, and a tin roof. Open windows let a breeze come through with no screens. So if a truck or motorcycle drove by, you heard it full on and that disrupted the class session. Or if folks walking by got into an argument, you heard it all. There was nothing on the walls, so the acoustics were lousy. No lights, so if it was rainy or cloudy, it would be dark inside the classroom. My dad, being a veteran to the school and the whole teaching experience, set me up for success on several fronts. I joke about a few of these things even today, but I can see the wisdom in what he did for me and his counsel at the time. The first thing he gave me was a big box of chalk. Yes, chalk. It was about six inches by six inches in size, with maybe a hundred pieces in there. He'd bought it just for me in Bangui, Central African Republic, and that would be my supply for the entire year. The key was to not leave any pieces of chalk in the classroom blackboard tray, as they would disappear. Second, he gave me a ream of paper. This was like gold, as paper was hard to come by inexpensive. The third thing he did for me was setting me up with one of the other African teachers to connect with. His name was Kakoko. I'd brought out some used soccer cleats and a new soccer ball with me for this teacher who brought instant friendship and relationship. Soccer was all the rage in Congo and soccer cleats and real leather balls were very rare. So him not having to play barefoot moved him up the soccer social status ladder quite a bit. With him on my side, right out of the gate with the faculty, that was a great way to start the year. On my first day of introduction, he set all the kids straight in my classroom about who was in charge and to listen up. Professor Jeff was Mr. Rogers' son, and no guff would be allowed. So that was good to have. But the most impactful thing my dad did was give me some additional counsel. It was many months later before I fully understood the wisdom in it. Don't smile until November. What? I mean, don't smile until November. It was early August and school was starting and that meant I couldn't be me. Rather, I had to maintain a stoic demeanor and not build relationships with my personality, humor, language, and just being myself. I had to become the unJeff that everybody formerly knew and loved. The rationale was that if I started out being friendly and tried to build relationships with the kids first, then tried to move to a level of respect that was needed to maintain order, I'd never get there. Rather, earn their respect by being distant and firm immediately. Then, as respect is gained and boundaries established, soften it up a bit and begin to develop relationships with the kids as the year progressed. That way, the professor-student role would always be maintained and yield positive results for the balance of the year. My dad had seen many short-term teachers approach their classrooms the first way, and it never ended well. So, I heeded his advice and didn't crack a smile for over two months. The country was using the Belgian school format, a carryover from being a Belgian colony. When I entered the classroom, every kid stood up while I made my way to the front. They would sit down when I said they could sit down. Sometimes for kicks, I'd piddle around with paperwork, acting like I was deep in thought after I walked in, letting them stand there for a minute or two until I raised my head and motioned it was okay for them to be seated. They were programmed to show respect for the teacher. Same, too, when answering a question that was posed. They'd stand and then give their answer, and then sit down. Very respectful. So when any kid did anything remotely out of line or disrespectful, came in late, or goofed off in class, I immediately pointed to him or her and told them to get out and report to the discipline director. I kicked kids out of class those first few months on a daily basis. I drew my line and didn't take any guff right from the start. Yes, there was a person on staff that was in charge of student discipline. Depending on the infraction, discipline meant being suspended, getting slapped with a stick, being forced to be standing on your knees on the bare ground for an hour or two, or physical labor like digging a ditch, working in the teacher's garden, or cutting grass with a long machete. When they got into trouble, they really got into trouble and there was a price to pay. No crying to mommy or daddy here. So the first two months was pretty harsh in my classroom. And no, I didn't smile for over two months. So when November came, I started to lighten up, show some personality, and quit kicking kids out of class for slight infractions. The other thing that I did that solidified me as a good guy and supporter of the students in school was that I provided some athletic uniforms. My sophomore year in college, my part-time job was working for the athletic department in the gym. One day, we were cleaning out an old storage room and came across some old Trinity College basketball jerseys from the early 1970s. Definitely out of style and wouldn't be used anymore. So I asked Coach Mark Shartner if I could have them and take them to Africa with me. He agreed. So between my luggage and the crate that hauled my Honda motorcycle to Africa, I stuffed 15 Trinity College team jerseys inside and they all made it to Congo with me. So in November... I offered them to the school principal to be used for the volleyball matches or soccer matches that our school played against other schools. Wow, Institute Kimia had legit uniform jerseys with numbers and logos and everything. We might have been the only high school in the city with matching uniforms for the soccer team or volleyball team. Big time indeed. I got some serious brownie points for doing that. And I did thank Coach Shartner the following year when I returned to the U.S., As they were a huge hit. The teaching and learning style was different. Learning by rote was the norm. Rote learning is a memorization technique based on repetition. The method rests on the premise that the recall of repeated material becomes faster the more one repeats it. Here in the U.S., we are used to a portion of our teaching and learning to be based on this. For example, As a child in elementary school, we all learned and basically memorized our addition and multiplication tables. Same for phonics. This creates the foundation of building our learning on critical thinking of more complex concepts and understanding. So instead of getting a balance of rote learning for which was appropriate, and then having the critical thinking process developed by studying and reading textbooks, the majority of the education process in Congo was by rote. My dad, Roger Eels, who taught for 20 years in the Congolese school system, felt that to maximize the learning, he'd write the notes on the blackboard, explaining the concept as he wrote. The students would copy that into their notebooks as they didn't have textbooks. I've asked Brad Hill, a retired missionary school teacher and pastoral worker that taught back in the 1970s and the 1980s to describe the difference in teaching methodologies between the U.S. and the Congo due to the difference in resources.
1: The students expected a lot less interaction with the professor than I think we're used to here in the States. Uh, Most of them, I think they all grew up under sort of the pure lecture style. They took notes, copious notes, and were expected to repeat them on the tests. Open-ended questions and, of logic or analysis or inviting discussions or opinions kind of threw them. They really didn't know what to do with that style of teaching. Uh, memorization trumped understanding in a lot of cases. I needed to write a lot of things on the blackboard that they copied into their notebooks and they're expected then to replicate that on the test. So it was a lot more rote, but um, yeah, I tried to do uh, discussion and and invite opinion, but they were reticent to do so for the most part.
0: The limited supplies was also a factor, as previously mentioned. Most teachers brought their own pencils, paper, chalk, and so on. There was a mimeograph machine where one could make copies of handouts or tests, and that was nice. When it worked. If memory serves, I had nine textbooks for my entire English class. Nine for over 60 kids. How does that work? Sometimes they'd share the book, but essentially without one's own textbook, it was almost impossible for them to study and really learn. Here's how Brad explains working in a teaching environment with almost no school resources.
1: There's a lot of gallows humor about that. Often what we did have was ruined by termites or by humidity. And if we had some chalk, that was considered gold. We hoarded that like valuable treasure. So as a result, there was a lot more oral presentation, and that required less material. My first year, there was a there were notebooks, there was paper and there was supplies and when we first began there seemed to be some adequate materials that we could access, but with the period of authenticity and nationalizing of the businesses and so on, most of the products disappeared from the stores and therefore from access to the schools. But how I cope I guess I was telling myself this, that even without teaching materials, they are still learning and they're learning more than they would if they didn't go to school at all. But one of the coping things was that we would find some white paint somewhere and we would turn the blackboard into a whiteboard. Then we could use charcoal to write on it. But the mission schools that we were in also had some financial support from outside, and so we were able to import some paper and some basic materials and things like that.
0: But what about the kids' eagerness to learn? Often in the US, kids don't wanna go to school. They look for any distraction to not be in class and it's all about the last bell ringing or the weekend activities. While most kids probably want to learn while in school, there's an undercurrent in society that school is not beneficial and is something that has to be endured. Teachers and their authority and school being compared to a prison and a bad institution was a common thread in our culture, especially for high schools. I can't speak for students today, but back in the 1970s and 1980s, the attitude about schools and teachers was exemplified by that famous song by Pink Floyd telling teachers, How sad to think that a sector of our society ridicules school and teaching. So while it was a privilege in Congo to go to school to learn, in the U.S., every kid, even illegal immigrants, get to go to school for free, compliments of the taxpayer. Not quite the same in Congo, as everybody had to pay to go to school, so it held more value. Furthermore, they knew that education was a key to getting up and out of their base poverty existence. Also, the more educated you were, the more you were respected by society in general. Elementary and secondary school was all geared to passing the annual state exam to earn a high school diploma. Once you had that, it opened up considerable doors for employment. Then, if money was available, going to a university was a big deal. So what did Brad think about this?
1: The lower grades, which we would consider like junior high, I guess, Uh, were all about passing with the 50 percent. 50 percent was passing on assignments and tests, and not necessarily about learning. But I think the further you went up the educational ladder, there seemed to be more eagerness to actually learn along the way. And the further you went up the educational ladder, even in just high school, the more you had future opportunities to go on to uh, university or to get jobs, and your status increased. But later I taught at the seminary, which was adults. And I would say that there there was definitely a, a keen passion for actually learning the material. Uh, advancement there and good grades there meant actually very little as compared to the high school students it didn't increase their status or their income or anything. They were there to learn and to master the material. But I assume that's also true for any graduate level school in the Congo, that the higher up you go, the more students are interested in actual learning and not just uh, memorizing and passing.
0: I have friends currently that are still bugging me for money so their kids can pay for university to finish their degree due to the high cost of room, board, and tuition. So there is a drive, an eagerness for education for sure in Congo. In fact, most Congolese kids that I know that came to the United States years ago and live here now have all gone on to get their bachelor's degree and most have their master's degree. Contrast that where everybody, and I mean everybody in the U.S. that wants a post-high school education can get one at a trade school, community college, or regular university. Yet many people don't take advantage of our relatively inexpensive education system. And financial aid, loans, and work allows anybody that wants to, to get a degree. While in Congo, money often prevented kids from going to school. Another dimension worth mentioning is that often the teachers in Congo would go months or even years without being paid by the government. Remote villages would send a representative into the provincial capital to secure the funds due to the teachers in the elementary and high schools out in the remote areas, and they'd often return empty-handed as the money was lost, stolen, or never sent. Contrast that to the U.S., where every month, every school teacher and school employee gets a paycheck and generous benefits without fail. So while the deck was stacked against the teacher due to minimal resources and lousy infrastructure, there was satisfaction in seeing kids learn and move on in their education to high school graduation and often beyond that. Brad shares.
1: Well, I think as with any teacher, what gives you satisfaction is when students kind of get it. There's the aha moment or they, oh, I understand what you're saying or, or whatever. It could be a math problem or philosophy and suddenly, oh, the light comes on and they kind of, and you know that they've got it by their questions or their responses. And I also enjoyed and got great satisfaction from those gifted students that seemed to just catch on to whatever subject you were teaching and uh, go with it. and We stayed in Congo long enough to see a lot of these students graduate go on to university or go on to other jobs. Some of them became teachers. Some went on to the Bible schools or the seminaries. And we saw many of the students become Christians along the way. We had their daily uh, chapel times and uh, evangelism campaigns. And many of my students, we went out on weekend trips to villages where we did teaching, preaching, Sunday school, dramas, music. You know, they played a lot of uh, instruments, and so we went out and did that. One of my students became president of the denomination there, the CEUM, and another one of my students actually, um, uh, more than one, got a doctorate, and one is now a senator in uh, the Senate there in Congo. So all of these things, I think, are satisfaction that the labor had fruit to it, and glad to see that.
0: Another dimension that is much easier to handle in DR Congo than the U.S. is discipline. I have quite a few friends that are school teachers, and the horror stories of drama, sassiness, violence, disrespect, verbal threats, and disobedience is appalling. And the teacher's hands are tied, as the kids seem to have all the rights, and are virtually untouchable regardless of behavior. Not so in Congo. There, for the smallest infraction, the teacher can simply tell a student to leave and report to the director of discipline. Punishment varied, as mentioned before, based on the infraction. Often it was physical labor, like working in the teacher's garden, cutting grass, and other things. One punishment that was severe was having the student dig up a termite anthill to find the queen that was buried way inside the hill. If you recall my episode on Congolese cuisine, I explained how the anthill was super hard clay, the protective soldier ants would bite, and it often took several hours of digging with a shovel or pickaxe to find the brick-sized clump of dirt in which the queen ant was located. The student would then crack open the clot of dirt with the queen ant and present it to the director of discipline as proof of performing the punishment. I'll say that is much harder than staying after school an hour in detention. So while I only taught for a year, Brad can elaborate more on this discipline issue.
1: The principal of the school, or the prefe had pretty much complete autonomous authority over the students. And a teacher may or may not, but if the students disrespected the teacher in some way, the prefe was in there immediately, and that student was dealt with, which I will talk more about in a moment. So the prefe or the principal, was really the only court of appeal that mattered. I actually served as prefe for one year of a high school. And it felt really odd for me to have that much power. My word was carried so much weight. There was no parent committee. There was no teacher's union. You know, it was, it was me. Every morning, there was a, a regimen of discipline that started around the flagpole as the flag was raised and song, patriotic songs were sung. And the last song was supposed to end when the flag hit the top. When the professor entered the room, the students had to stand, and they all had to to say, bonjour, professeur. If they had a question, they were supposed to stand to ask their question. And students that committed infractions were usually given manual labor of some kind, cutting grass, bringing in firewood from the forest. But serious infractions were dealt with by various links of expulsion from the school. But I actually never saw nor did I know about corporal punishment that was meted out to the students.
0: Here in the United States, both boys and girls have the same opportunities for education and even athletics. Not so in Congo, as if money was tight for a family, the boys would usually get the tuition money and the girls would be relegated to staying home and taking care of the kids or working in the gardens. It's a shame, as a ticket out of the patriarchal culture for the girls was getting a good education.
1: I'm gonna talk about mostly grades nine through 12 here. The proportion of girls diminished from maybe 20% of the population, just guessing, at grade nine, to by the time they were a senior in high school, there may be no girls at all, or maybe one or 2% of the students the attrition for the girls was uh, much higher, and the girls were more reluctant, I think, to speak out or to demonstrate. And certainly if they excelled, they were very quiet about it. And I learned early on not to give them public acknowledgement that they had excelled or else they would be you know, dealt with in various ways by the boys later.
0: Both Brad and my dad were there to work with and minister to the students that was their mission field. My dad would handpick six kids each year and mentor them, going to villages once a month, and had great relationships with students that carried over into their university years and adult years. He also would work with students with teaching Bible courses and other things like showing films and movies. You can hear all about that in my episode number seven. He continued to encourage and support many students and help them with their tuition costs as they advanced into university or seminary. Brad, too, found fulfillment with students he'd taught as they moved up in society and in ministry and adulthood.
1: As I said, the Institute of Chemia was a Christian school, and though it was never assumed that everybody there was a Christian, there was required chapel attendance. Um, But as I was a lay teacher then, so I think I was witnessing and serving, not out of the capacity as a a clergy or anything like that, but simply as as a teacher teaching various subjects. But there were many opportunities to gather students together in teams to do different uh, projects or to do village work or evangelism or Sunday school, as I mentioned before. And we also had many groups of students over the years into our home for Bible studies and discussion and and things like that. So I don't know if it was different, but I certainly had lots of opportunity to bear witness to Christ and to live my Christian life in a very public way. Because you remember, we lived right there in the midst of the students. (laughs) And so there, there was no secrets really from them as to how we lived and what kind of people we were.
0: I can't remember any crazy or unusual things that happened in my classroom during my year of teaching, but I've asked Brad to share an interesting story that he remembers that was fun slash funny slash interesting in nature. Here goes.
1: The buildings had no windows. I mean, no glass in the windows. They were just open, which is nice <laughs> for breezes and stuff. Um, because it was a tin roof, every time a rain... Cloud went by and pounded on the tin roof. We had to stop because we couldn't hear each other in the classroom. But one day there was a mild earthquake, and suddenly all the students just jumped up and jumped out of the windows. And I was left standing alone in the class. I <laughs> just kind of like what. <laughs>
0: He also shares one that is pretty intense and was fraught with danger and was pretty crazy with what the students did to a teacher they didn't like. Not sure this would fly in the United States.
1: The year I was prefe and the one reason I was only there one year was because I had a student insurrection. It's too long of a story, I think, to tell here, but basically some tribal conflicts between students and, and one of the teachers got out of hand. And when I tried to enforce some discipline and some law, um, they went and burned down the teacher's house and refused to come into class. When I went to try to meet with the students, they, they, as a mob, they, they chased me into my office where they started to throw stones through the windows, but there was no glass in the windows. So the stones kind of went through. And I had to send word out to the local police, which was a couple miles down the road. And when they came, they arrived with batons and shotguns. And that tended to quiet the students down. And the local chief came and and solved the whole situation by telling the students they had to go back to class and that the teacher had to leave. (laughs) Teacher left and kids went back to class. But I think my authority, had been sabotaged by then. And so by the end of that year, they suggested that I not stay there. And so I moved on to other ministry there in Congo. But that was my year as Prefe, and that's kind of much how it ended.
0: That year as a high school professor was a great experience for me. I really enjoyed teaching the kids, even with so many cards stacked against me with limited supplies and resources and a foreign language. Yet, when a concept was grasped and the proverbial light bulb went on in someone's head, it was very rewarding. I didn't get to participate in the kids' lives over multiple years like my dad or Brad did to see the fruits of my efforts as I was only there for one year. Yet, I'd like to think that I had a positive impact on my students and that they continued on with their desire for an education. And teaching remains one of my strong suits, which I enjoy even now. Often at work, they send folks to me to explain concepts or how to do certain functions. Or, even more flattering, is when someone says that someone told them to come to me to teach them a concept or function or task, as I can explain it in a simple and clear manner. I'd like to say that it's partly from inheriting the teaching gene from my dad and from what I learned as a high school teacher in Congo, trying to teach chemistry and English in another language. If I can explain chemistry in French to kids without textbooks, I can easily explain how the net present value works on a real estate investment to somebody in English. I often chuckle to myself listening to American teachers complain about having over 30 kids in a classroom and how the AV equipment didn't work that day for a presentation or telling everyone how tough it is being a teacher. Then I simply tell them that I used to teach high school, and they should try teaching 60 kids in a class with only nine textbooks and a crummy blackboard where you had to bring your own chalk to use. Oh, and do it in French. They look at me like I'm either crazy or they don't believe it, but they always do one thing. They stop complaining. I want to thank my dad, Roger Eels, for the information he provided for this episode and also Brad Hill for his contribution with information and stories to help make this episode. My dad, Brad Hill, and numerous others worked hard in challenging situations to do their best to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic to students in Congo. More importantly, they had a positive role in their students' lives and made a huge impact that is felt to this day throughout the world as many went on to important positions in government, law, pastoral work, And the like. I commend them for their tenacity and investment in those kids for so many years. For me, being Professor Jeff in a high school at the tender age of 20 was such a great learning experience for me. It was a great year and very impactful for me, and I've taken what I've learned and carried that with me ever since. So that concludes this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will listen again. Other podcasts and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Congo Kid's life stories are also posted on Apple iTunes, Google Podcast, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I will send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Baninganangai, tikalamalamu. My friends, stay well.